Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Radical Humanity. My name is Ben Hoover, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my little side gig. So welcome. Um, okay, so I had this thought before I was I was going to do this episode, and I'm actually I'm really excited about this one because uh, it's uh, it's stemming from uh, this written piece that I just had, and it's probably it's it's up there with one of my favorite pieces that I've written. But I was thinking how, man, you know, when I listen to other podcasts and they have maybe two to four people in there, they can it, there's there's breaks in thinking and speaking because the other people will interact and and then you can sometimes it will derail uh, the focus and the topic, but other times it uh, it, it can kind of uh, enrich it. And add more. And I realized it's actually really challenging to do a podcast uh, solo because I there isn't this interactive dynamic happening that, that kind of creates some energy. It's like you kind of have to s- sort of tap into that that inner passion uh, uh, and and ability to infuse that into what you talk about. Um, so anyway, that was just a, it was an interesting thought because I realized, man, when I start gearing up for this, I'm going over what I've written and then I'm writing notes and then, and then I'm thinking, man, I could just keep writing notes to everything because I, there's a lot that I've written that I'm really, really like and enjoy and think, oh, I've got to say it. I, I've got to, I've got to use this line. I got to say it anyway. Um, so I think I mentioned that before, but it, it, it is, it's kind of a challenge, it's, it's, but it's sort of exciting. And at some point, I just, I stopped uh, taking notes and I thought, you know what, let's just see where this goes. Um, so on that note, this episode is called Blood, Rules, Robes, and Freedom. Fancy, right? So, uh, so there's this story. And it comes from the ancient writings. People call it scriptures or the Bible or whatnot. Now, if you're repelled, if you if you're if you're tempted to switch this off, and you're you're repelled by kind of the religious, uh, the potential religious sound in this, stay with me. I promise. I'm going to strip the religion out of this. Um, the the this the sort of religious tradition kind of sound in this um so so bear with me here because this i believe is is intrinsic in all of us um so anyway so this is what i love about some of these stories that are written thousands of years ago is they're so profound and poignant and they have uh these incredible uh messages that i that I think stand the test of time, and uh, and for me, what I discovered is, oh man, this touches something in myself presently today. Uh, so, on that note, there's this woman. So in the story, there's this woman who's been hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging for over a decade. So she's uh, what we're told is that she was she's depleted herself financially to try to medically correct the problem. Unfortunately, though, she remains in suffering. And the and all her finances are are uh, basically she bankrupts herself in a way to try to fix this, but it it there's no success. 
So she spent everything. And then, and then we're told that, well, in the midst of this crowd that starts growing around Jesus, um, she finds herself all of a sudden wanting and, and willing and determined to kind of press through the crowd and, and through this, this kind of dense gathering. And to touch his garbs. It even says in there that she kind of has this sort of this self, this self-talk, pep talk, sort of of prepping herself to go after this. And I think she says, if I only touch his robe, then I'll then I'll be healed. So something profound kind of happens to her. Right? So she presses through and and she touches his garbs, and then this this phenomenological event happens. Right? So this what seemed like this immutable and haunting ailment now now is gone. It's vanished. And there's so there's this instant healing. And so this unrelenting ailment just disappears, just like that. And what's interesting is then it says that Jesus feels this energy leave his body, and he adamantly wants to know who touched him. And the disciples, which were his kind of posse that gathered around him as he uh, as he did his little three year stint. Um, kind of shaking things up, the <laughs> shaking up the religious structures and and uh, and really connecting with the disconnected in life, um, or at least those that were expressed themselves blatantly in in a, their disconnection blatantly in life, the ostracized, the outcasts, right? So here he is, um, you know, having had his robe touch, and he feel it's interesting. He has this, it says his energy leaves his body. Power leaves his body, it says. I like saying energy. And the disciples kind of are, kind of say, Jesus, man, there's so many people around us. I mean, the crowd just keeps getting larger. This is You're not going to find this person. But Jesus was adamant. He wanted to know. And then this woman shows up, the woman that touches garbs. And she shows up and she's trembling. So she's shaking, she's terrified, and she admits, she comes clean, that she's the one that touched his robe. So these are all really significant, by the way, so I will, I'm going to expand on it. And so she responds to this, uh, this um, to her with this abnormal statement, because she's, well, she's probably thinking of the worst outcome possible. Instead... Rather than Jesus reprimanding her, he says, your faith has made you well. Go and be free from your affliction. And then the story ends. So that's it. That's all we have, right? So, yeah, it's a nice short little story. That's about it. But I'll tell you what, man, when you really strip this down and you really go into it, oh, man, is it meaty. It's a lot. There's a lot on this bone. But, so... But when I strip down the ancient narrative to this bare bones, all right, even though there's a lot packed in this tale, which I'll, I'll, we'll start kind of connecting the dots on, there's this, um, there's this line, there's this one, I think, central centering um, point, message. And I think it's so profound, and it, 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 it's, it's one that pertains to us today. It's one that doesn't leave us. It's one that moves us in the very way that it moved the woman. It doesn't have a half-life. It doesn't have an expiration date. It's, in, it's this inextinguishable and intrinsic force within ourselves that I believe grounds us, it moves us, and it's and across time. 
across human evolution. And some of us trust it and some of us fear it. And when we fear it, this part of ourselves, we bury it down to construct artificial securities. And we can, we can do a lot of psychological traveling in that, but I won't. But, we, but out of fear, we create these manufactured securities in the hopes that, that it will inoculate vulnerability or facing the unknown and the potential for pain. But if we were to actually really open ourselves up to this inner compelling force, that what evolves, what, what shifts is this is, is living life from a position of terror to one that's actually characterized uh, and, and rich with ex- enjoyment and pleasure, joy, excitement, peace, even while we're immersed in the unpredictable. So when we live in fear, right, when we're so ravaged and consumed by fear, right, because we're afraid of harm, we're afraid of pain, we're afraid of loss, we're afraid, whatever it is that then instigates pain, we will try to uh, put regulations, controls around the unknown. But I argue that actually it's wired in us, intrinsic in us, to live in the unknown. And that's where it gets exciting. So, and so then I ask myself these questions that what if this ancient story, it's not really ancient? That its truths actually are vibrantly moving in the now, presently. What if we have the same access to this reality that the woman did in the tale, or the story? And I also ask, like, okay, well, what's the significance of the bleeding, of the, the crowd, his garments, their trembling, and Jesus' odd statement of faith and, and benediction? How does this connect to me, to my personal narrative, or our personal narrative? And could it be that if we were to unpack it, we might discover something that lies at the very core of our own selves, this undiscovered invitation that awaits within us to experience life very differently. Well, let's see. So what I want to do is I want to then go, I want to start at the end and I work, want to work my way back. And I was, when I was writing this, I was trying to think of the, what's, I mean, there's a lot of movies that kind of have, that sometimes do that little artsy style where they you start off with with this event and it's it's kind of a chaotic crisis event and the guy's you know bleeding and he wakes up and he doesn't know why he's bleeding and then like and then it starts like you know taking you back in time and reversing oh memento that was it i got it memento so we're gonna do a little memento work here but we're gonna start at the end and then work our way back so Jesus makes this interesting statement, right, about the woman's faith and its connection to this miraculous uh, event, this disappearance of her ailment. Now, this is what's so fascinating to me. It's, it's such a weird, confounding response. And that's what, uh, that's what draws me in. That's what attracts me is this whole faith word, right? Because, um, because I think, man, we throw that word out there a lot, and it's, again, it's very, at times, very associated in sort of the religious end of things. 
or we might kind of put that in like hallmarky statements on cards or, you know, or you'd say you just got to have faith or something like that, right? But this compelled me to really look into this more. And I'll tell you what, I was blown away excited by what I discovered in this story. So, so my question is, what in the world is he talking about when it comes to faith? And, and how is that a catalyst in our healing? And you see that in the, some of the other stories in the ancient texts. People getting healed because of their faith, or they're healed indirectly because of the faith of other people that go to Jesus for help. There's some strange connection happening with this faith thing. And then this phenomenological outcome. But I just, I, I want to note here that I'm, I'm not, I'm, my focus, I'm not at all interested in the healing part. I'm really not. That's, that's the outcome. It's too mysterious, right? There's, there's often this heightened focus when it comes to healing. People try to demystify it and turn it into formula and whatnot. And like I said, particularly in like the religious communities, um, some of those that really emphasize sort of the, the miraculous healing works and whatnot. And, and for me, it just gets a little dicey and convoluted, and I don't, I don't like that because I, I don't know why. I don't know why you know, the out, these outcomes happen. I mean, the truth is there are phenomenological experiences. There are kind of weird metaphysical interactions that happen in life. I mean, you know, people in all walks of life can probably speak to that. And there's some, sometimes some strange things. And often I would say that religious, sort of the religious traditions, the, the, the parameters of life, they'll corner this and then they'll make strenuous efforts to make healing happen. They'll send some Batman SOS signal to, to kind of alert the divine, <laughs> send it in the sky kind of thing, and do this whole, kind of whole genie wish thing. And then when the outcome doesn't happen, then there's, it, it really, um, it really degrades, it plummets into this, um, this despair and self-blame because nothing happened. And then one will credit themselves as kind of in their impotency of faith. Well, it's my problem. You know, it's my fault. I didn't, you know, I didn't believe enough. I didn't. But see, here's the thing is it's faith, this concept of faith that really draws me in. And I'm going to actually expand on what I think, um, uh, uh, what's synonymous with faith, by the way. So, uh, yeah. So, so in my perspective, then, it's been really associated with the religious department or humanity, and it's, and it's been misappropriated with belief. Um, so this, uh, so let me, let me differentiate what belief is. It's, it's, we've treated it kind of synonymously, right? Now, belief for me, uh, the way that I like to phrase this is it's, it's more of a framework. It's a lens through which we perceive life. It's kind of an understanding, sort of a collective understanding. And it's often assembled or constructed by assumptions or perspectives or theories. And, and, it, and it, it kind of forms out of experiential interactions that we have in life. You know, we might encounter something and then it maybe adds or maybe it, it, it gets uh, um, sort of framed by what we already, how we already kind of understand life. Um, or, and a lot of times our belief systems are kind of absorbed, created from this absorption of external messages. 
And so, so belief is more of this kind of cognitive rendering, cerebral rendering of life. Um, and people get really, uh, it, it get really kind of, how would I say, there can be a rigidity around belief system and, and our beliefs. And then when that gets shaken up, it creates, it can be really disorienting. Um, I mean, this, these last several years alone, my, my viewpoints of life have been wildly disturbed. And, and as unpleasant as it's been, it's actually helped me so much kind of expand my awareness and consciousness of life. So sometimes our belief system, we hold on to it so tightly and it, const- it constricts and, and actually can, it prevents us from learning and growing. So faith for me is really this, it's in a different category all in itself. And really it actually rattles belief, uh, our belief system. And sometimes our belief system can actually uh, rob us from, uh, from this interesting experiential interaction um, that goes on inside of us, which is what I call faith. Um, it will, it will shake, you know, and so, so, but faith actually will kind of rupture, it will challenge, it will, it will um, impact the, the security, the belief structures that have created security for us. So faith, really, if, if I'm gonna um, really kind of distill it, define it, it's this strange inner phenomenon that happens inside of ourselves. And it engenders one actually to push past the boundaries of life, the, the, the rules employed by society. It doesn't have this right, wrong, good, bad sort of framework behind it, this labeling. It's, it's, it, it, it eludes and escapes really belief system and categories. It's this inner movement, this, like I said, this inner force. Um... And so uh, it, it, and so it escapes explanation and formulaic distillation. We can't bottle it. We can't put um, put instructions to it. But it's an active guidance inside of us that compels us into the uh, the unknown, into dimensions of uncertainty. It ruptures parameters of belief. It casts us out into the into the outer limits of the familiar of what we know. So it's this enigmatic, energetic, internal activity, right? Say that four times, five times fast. And what I believe faith is is actually connected to our genuine self, our genuine desires and wants, and that it disturbs us. Faith disturbs us out of our comfort and this captivity to go and engage in the unfamiliar. And faith operates universally. It's outside of religious properties. No one has a corner on the market of faith. It, 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 it courses through every single one. It circulates. It stirs in every single person. And that when it comes to faith, it actually requires trust, meaning that we heed the messages and we go. We follow it. We see it out. That's what I mean by trust. Trust is this interaction in the unknown. We don't know but there's this pull, this, this draw to go and see. And that's what trust is. If you, if you know, if you actually know, if you fully understand, there's no trust in there. Trust is, it happens when we're in the unknown. So 
what faith does is, is what happens with faith is that we get these little succinct messages and they lacks any fuller understanding at the moment, the present time. You just, it's those moments where I like phrasing it this way is, I don't know why, I just got to go do it sort of thing. I want to do it. So sometimes faith will call us to pause, to wait, maybe to rest. But at other times, it calls us, it, it stirs us to move and seek, to explore, to discover, to say something, to ask. So it's not, and it's not fueled by fear or desperation, right? Because desperation is just that it's, uh, that's uh, f- um, created out of fear, birth out of fear. But it's actually a grounded connection to oneself. Um, and it's primed by an inner assurance or knowing. And it signals, uh, I think we end up engaging with faith more. We can pick up those signals a lot more the more we move by its guidance. The more we trust it, it actually grows. It strengthens, it expands. And it will lower the external noise that often disrupts frequency. So someone might kind of jump in and say, well, I think you should do this. Or, I think, or they might throw judgments are out there uh, you know, at you. And it can really derail trusting this part of ourselves. But, um, but when we actually kind of come back to the signal and, and listen to that, that's, that's what guides us. That's what brings clarity. Not with the external voices that engulf us, but actually, it, and it's prime. It's it's so it's this inner knowing. We just know. This is what I want to say. This it's not even like I have to, but it's I want to. I can't not do it. So for me, when I look at this story, this woman that's been suffering for decades from unrelenting bleeding displays this profound intuition that's inherent, that I believe is inherent in all of us. And she wakes up to this this internal energy that demolishes the societal constraints of her day and drives her powerfully to, uh, to find what she deeply desires. And it's this, it's this deep, deep, profound craving to be free. So that's why, for me, this story is so fascinating because, because what, what I'm arguing... What I'm stating, claiming here, is that ener- this energy is, that this woman had access, paid attention to, responded out of. Thousands of years ago in this story, whether it's literal, figurative, I don't care. It's this energy that's vibrant. It's vibrantly alive. By the way, I do think, in a way, this actual story did happen. But, um, but I, I don't get hung up on that. I get hung up on the message of it. There's a reason why this was written. Why the what the writer was trying to convey, and so this kind of energy is vibrant. It's pulsating. It's alive. It's engaging with us every day. I believe, and it disturbs our artificial comforts and our manufactured peace that we work so hard to hold on to and create. And it's an energy that I believe that destroys uh, barriers. Uh, ingrained in humanity, dividing lines that trouble our human connection and facilitate really globally a human disconnection. And also, I believe that it's rooted in genuineness and vulnerability, which is the very fabric and origins of our own selves, our own humanity. So 
let's see if this story kind of backs up the, my <laughs> what I'm um, postulating here. Let's see if uh, let's see if if that it it it's congruent with that. So this woman ends up breaking all the rules of her society as she listens to this pull, this current in herself. And she risks actually ridicule and shame and punishment as a consequence of this choice. That's why I believe she was shaking. But then I ask this question, well, why? Why, why would touching his robe, why if she was bleeding, and why if she's going to touch his robe and push through these crowds and, and then, you know, and then... And then terrified, she's frightened as he asks who, who it was that touched him. And she's so afraid to say that it was her, even though she does. Like, why? Why is this, why does this have any relevance or importance? What does this mean? Why is this happening? Well, we have to kind of rewind a little back because there's this exhausting list of laws that really the Jewish communities have lived by. Depending on there was different little religious uh, brand, little religious sects, um, uh, sort of formed groups that distinguished themselves from one another based off of what they believed the law meant and the practice of the law meant. But um, so, but nonetheless, these these laws really ruled the society. They lived by them, and 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 where these laws came from, just briefly, is in the Old Testament. And we see that in several books in the Old Testament called the Torah, where all these decrees were divinely given to their forefather, Moses. Um, I'm sure people are familiar with Moses, the whole kind of parting of the sea sort of guy there. Um, and it's during this kind of unpredictable venture in the wilderness that, that they get these all these laws. And really, I the way I see it is that these laws functioned as kind of the preliminary building blocks. They were kind of the starter kit to reorienting people to a genuine humanity because humanity was kind of just off the rails, scattered, you know, just consuming life, people, um, you know, uh, just kind of, um, you know, raping, pillaging, enslaving, whatnot. So these rules kind of sort of helped them find themselves again, a genuine humanity, kind of a connected alignment with life. Now, one of these rules, so this is what this is where it gets really interesting to me, is one of these rules has to do with the woman bleeding. And and so that talks about, and this is in the book of Leviticus, it talks about menstruation, when a woman has her period, that um that she, you know, is considered unclean and has to bathe and whatnot and um and uh, and so so there's this terminology of unclean, impure whatnot. Um, and that, that ruled the day in this present story. Um, that was very much kind of the, the way people framed, uh, various experiences, facets, uh, of, of human life and action and behavior and whatnot. Um, so, but there was this other part, in addition to menstruation, that if a woman was bleeding for, for reasons that didn't have to do with the period, then she'd have to go through the same process, maybe a little bit different. But, um, but so she, if she happened to have this condition, then she was declared unclean by society. And so this unclean or this impure, this impure state meant that like anything she touched, sat on, you know, was considered defiled by this unclean condition. 
And so if she came in to anything, or if anything came into contact with her blood, or, you know, like I said, sat on the sheet's bed, that this too would then become unclean. And so, so because of that, then her, because of her impurity, then it would be considered soiled, even people. So if it was another person, then they have to go through this necessary bathing protocol to eradicate the unclean condition. And it says in the story that then uh, at, uh, by evening, they'd be considered clean again. Now, that's, that's not the woman. That's the person that, uh, that ended up touching her. So um, now for the woman who had this, uh, this discharge, this bleeding discharge, um, she would have to, so she would have to bathe after discharge and then wait seven days and then be considered clean, right? Um, so, uh, so, and that would come subsequent to her bathing. And that would restore to what was considered this sort of ceremonial clean state. So in other words, the way I like to phrase this is that uh, this cleansing process would reconcile her into an acceptable state um, by the divine and society. So hopefully that makes sense. Now, but what's, what is interesting, actually, is that this woman in the story has been bleeding incessantly for 12 years, hemorrhaging or whatnot. So when you piece it all together, that means she's been imprisoned by this unclean condition for over a decade. And then where my mind goes even further than that is on a societal point, um, dimension, is that I can guess that she's also been the pariah of her community. That she's been, that she's suffered under this, this judgment that she's defiled because her bleeding can't stop. There's no stop to it. Nothing will stop it, right? And then she, so she can't bathe. She remains constantly impure. She can't eradicate her unclean state. But this also makes me wondering that beyond just the physical suffering, there's also the psychological and relational suffering, right? Emotional suffering. She's been consumed and plagued and this is my hunch, by loneliness and relational disconnect. No one wants to be around her, right? At the risk of, of uh, kind of being infected, so to speak, with this impurity that I can imagine then they avoid her, they circumvent her. And so this woman here is not only devastated by this incurable situation, but it's also, she's haunted by societal alienation that only increases her pain and misery. And so, and so, and not only do people avoid her, I imagine that she also steers away from other people because of the stigma. So she's ravaged by the reality and feeling that she's alone and that she's dissociated from everyone else around her. But this is what I love about her. This is what makes her badass, is that she risks everything to touch Jesus' garment. Right? There's this inner knowing of, I, I want to go do this. And hell if I know what the outcome's going to be, but there was this hope. There was this hopeful knowing that something was going to happen. And so she pushes through the crowd, by the way, making contact with people. 
So that means that she just caused an outbreak of defilement. And she touches people, she touches Jesus, she touches Jesus' garment. Right? To find fulfillment in what she wanted. She listened to her inner voice, which actually meant that she transgressed the law to free herself of endless suffering. This is a bold act. I mean, you know, it. how seductive is that pull to live in torment on a physical and psychological level, right? To, to continue living in that. I mean, because of the laws, because of the, the, the community's reaction. I mean, she could have stuck to keeping to the, to the law and the standards and practices. But instead, she trusts this drive to go in the unknown, and she, throws, she risks everything. She puts everything on the line. And so she trembles, right, as Jesus wants to know who touched him. Because the reality is she risks judgment, reprimand. And this is a response that's, that's not unfamiliar. It was so ingrained in humanity to judge one another, right? And, and so vulnerably, and this is, this is an act, this is a vulnerable, genuine act. And she exposes herself. So it's not only that she pushed through the crowd to touch them, touch Jesus, defiling everybody, but also she then steps up, scared as shit, <laughs> exposing herself to him and others, claiming responsibility. And so Jesus, what's so beautiful is his response is so counter to what I believe she was so, the outcome she was so terrified of, that instead he, he lovingly affirms her for listening to herself. And he says this fascinating thing. He says, your faith. And the way I phrase that is she's, he's saying, he's referring to her own self, that you listen to yourself. She's praised for courageously acting on her intuition and her personal desire to be free. She found herself. She became genuine. That's incredible. But that's also where this, where this profound message in the story takes me, is that there's this, even though it's not said explicitly in the story, there's this because if you do research in the law, there's this whole concept of purity. And so what the story really, I believe, is emphasizing is where purity actually happens, which is in the heart. And when I say purity, I don't mean good, bad, right, wrong behavior, right? Because society had evaluated purity on behavioral standards, the whole right, wrong sort of kind of uh, rubric. But here the narrative is pointing to the fact that it's actually purity is generated internally. And when I'm talking about purity, I mean genuineness. And I believe that this is the kind of genuineness, the genuine self that Jesus is talking about when he says in, the, in his little beatitude um, uh, speech there, that he says that the blessed are the pure in heart. So here's where I take this, is that genuineness is when someone, this purity that's talked about, is when someone owns their desires, their wants, their feelings. They listen to the messages embedded within them, and they, they, they find the truth within it, and they follow its guidance, and they express it without the, the, the toxins of manipulation and deception. I mean, think about that in our own lives, right? How terrified we are to be honest with people 
to share that we don't like something or that we're angry at them. Or, and we do these roundabout ways where we will manipulate, right? Um, we'll, 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 we'll do these little indirect things instead of, instead of being genuine with them, being honest, being authentic. For example, <clears throat> and this just popped in my head, for me, for the longest time, because of my family upbringing, I, I had to shove my anger inward. I had to push it down, and I would turn on myself. <laughs> now, now actually, it was it would actually the anger would seep out in different ways. Where I would have an edge to my voice. I was super sarcastic. I was, I was biting, and there would be resentment in my voice and bitterness. And so it would show up in those ways. But I would do these. I would s- express my anger indirectly because, again, to express anger in my family would have been shut down, shamed. It was terrifying. It wouldn't have been received or the person wouldn't be open to hearing it and learning from me and what my anger meant and connecting with me. No, so I had to push it down and it would come out in other avenues. I would kind of become cold and ignore the person. Then I would go to them and say, you know what? You piss me off. <laughs> I hate you. Whatever, whatever it was that, was that was the voice of my anger. So that's what I mean that when we go back to this story that in what Jesus is talking about or what, what, it's, what these messages are is that someone that operates in purity happens inside and it's when there's this alignment with one's genuineness, with what is really the truth. And they express it, right, because they want to and they don't manipulate, they don't deceive. It's not to, it's not to generate a response in the others because I want to say this. So this authentic movement in life, I believe, happens at the core. And it requires us to really listen and engage with our inner selves. This genuineness, and I like, I like how I put this, is that it's this actualization, this waking up of the self. And it's generated from this inner congruity. When we, when we, it's where our feelings and our thoughts align. It's not, we don't use our, our mind to judge what we're feeling. We use it to, to, um, to notice, ah, I'm feeling angry. I don't know entirely why, but I'm going to say it. Or maybe we might kind of understand and we're, we, have a, we have the starting lines of something we're going to say and we do it. So, but it's this, there's this inner congruity. There's this alignment that happens in our feeling and thought on a conscious level. We're aware of it. And, and it's birthed out of this sort of these experiential signals, right? Something, something turns on in us, arouses us in our bodies. And, and I don't just mean on a sexual me. I mean, it, it, it stirs something on a physiological level that, we, that beckons us to respond, to listen to it, right? And so this genuineness is, um, is the outcome of this interaction inside. And so this phenomenon occurs, right, when we truly know what we want deep down, when we seek it out, when we express our feelings, when we confront the toxicities in our lives, that this, this genuine living, this way of being in the world, it risks everything in the realm of the external. That this risk may occur in loss, the distancing or the dissolving of close personal relationships. We may have to end a relationship. We may have to you know, express our gender, our sexuality, our, our anger, our hate, what we really want, what we like, and it might go against the standards of society. Right? And so, um, and so, so to, to become genuine takes, it, 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 
it is a risk. It creates division. Whether it wants to or not. I argue that it doesn't want to. It's, that's why we're so terrified to express these, these, this genuine part, the, our genuineness, to find that and, and bring it forward. And, these, and so what happens is we have these things that we hide in ourselves and we hide from ourselves with and we hide from others and we feel ashamed about or we viciously judge and, and yet it's the very parts that are writhing inside. They want to come forth They're to be seen, to be known and accepted. And that these unaccepted dimensions of ourselves, they reside often in the shadows, in the unconscious. We don't see it, right? But they seep out whether it's blatantly or in clandestine ways. For instance, a child that we would, that uh, psychologically would be determined, uh, um, uh, oh my God, I lost the title, uh, defiant, oppositionally defiant, right? Would actually, would, there, there are these, this, they're a prophet to the family, to the society, to whatnot, that actually this acting out is this expression of anger and this anger is communicating that there's something off in the family structure, right? But people will judge that. They'll, they'll make them the scapegoat, the problem, the, the, uh, the identified problem or patient or whatnot. And they want fix. It happens all the time in therapy. Even with a couple I was working with, it's like it was the you know, blame that it was, it was the, one of the spouse's anger that was the problem, but really, actually, that was, no, there was way too, there was a lot more complexity to that, that actually the other spouse was uh, doing things to actually create anger and then blaming the person for being angry. Um, and so, uh, and, and so anyway, where was I going with that? Um, oh, so that's what I mean, is like those that act out, that are blatant in their display of, um, you know, behavior, and they seem, re- they're, labeled rebellious or oppositional or whatnot, um, those are actually the ones that are calling us to actually discover the truth, to actually, they're a mirror to look inside ourselves. The children that act out are, are, um, are pontificating these messages for the parents to look inside themselves of what are we creating, what's missing, what's off. Right? That's why I don't particularly, I, I don't like working with children because I'd rather work with the, with the, the parental dyadic relationship because they're the ones creating this. Um, so anyway, so, uh, so back to these, these dimensions in ourselves that we push away, that as much as we fight them, this suppression, right, it pressurizes and then it bursts out and it comes, explodes outwards. And that this imprisonment wears when our true self is tired we're 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 tired of living in the darkness and we want to live in the light and we want to live free and so freedom for me happen what i believe is freedom happens when we we actually heed listen to the voice inside ourselves and we engage presently in life vulnerably and genuinely that to me is freedom it's not the absence of pain at all or disappointment or whatever whatever um, kind of different facets, right? R- r- variables of uh, of pain is is freedom is when we can actually accept ourselves fully that we can live in the world vulnerable and genuine. 
But when we avoid this inner voice, what happens is then uh, we suffer from anxiety, we feel lost, unsettled, stuck in despair, um, and we become engulfed by, by judgment, right? We'll, we'll, we'll harshly criticize and evaluate these parts of ourselves, uh, and, and then we'll also feel helpless, right? And it then muddles our ability to see and know the truth, the very truth that's like vibrantly stirring inside of us, like literally coming forth in our physiological outcome. You know, when I, I have I have a client that like, you know, she avoids this anger in herself, right? And, and this loneliness inside in it. And what happens is it manifests in all these physiological issues. Um, and so, but it's when we actually find our truth, we listen to it, we act from it, we engage in it, we bring it forth in the light. Maybe it's not just an acting on, maybe it's that it's something we bring the light to someone we feel safe with, right? Um, and, uh, and, and it's here then that inner peace takes place. The disturbance subsides and then tranquility replaces uh, this restlessness when we, we're derailed, when we, we avoid listening to, the, to that voice of honesty within, right? So for me, this is what the story is about. This is what's so incredible, that here is this bold woman that, that breaks the, the boundaries, the confines of the law and what society sets because she, she wants to be free, right? And freedom actually happens, I believe, when she when she, the it switches on for her that this is what she wants, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to touch his robe. If I just touch it, then the healing will happen, right? She didn't entirely know that in a way. Like, she, she couldn't predict the outcome, but there was this knowing of, I want to do that. And this, this energy activated her. And she, was, she entered into this realm of genuineness and vulnerability, by the way. I believe that's all synonymous. Freedom, genuineness, vulnerability, they're all uh, synonymous with each other. They mean the same thing. Because to be free is to be genuine and to be vulnerable, right? And so, so this isn't, for me, some anachronistic fable. It's, it's not a futuristic dream. It's not an unattainable reality. It's it, not at all, actually. I believe we have access to this because it lives inside of us. Um, and although... It's, it's often consumed and it's polluted by judgment and fear. I mean, think about it. When you have an experiential reaction, right? You're interacting with someone. What happens is we start blaming ourselves. There's something wrong with me. I do this all the time. And then I have to get out of that and realize, wait a minute, what am I feeling? And then what is this telling me about the interaction with this person, about this person itself? In fact, I had someone that, you know, um, bailed on therapy with me. Because I was kind of pushing this this avoidance of anger, um, and uh, really highlighting that, and then you know I get a call saying, "Nope, I'm I'm done. I don't like this direction," and um, and so uh, and so the reality though is that there was so much fear and judgment around this feeling. And, and so, and, and that's the risk we take when we engage with this, when we, when we're, we're no longer, we don't want to push parts of ourselves down anymore, just like this woman did. She no longer wanted to live in suffering. 
She wanted to be free. She no longer wanted to be alone in this, this alienated state. So she went towards what she believed would have brought uh, an end to the suffering and would have uh, fed, nourished her desires. Right? So this isn't some old, dusty story. In fact, it's so vibrant and alive now. I don't care whether it's literal, whether it's figurative account, that this writer really is communicating something profound. It's so profoundly central in our human existence. This woman operated radically, right? And when I say radically, she listened to the stirring inside herself. And she risked being driven deeper into society's margins and the ob- becoming an object of scorn. But she, uh, but she heeded, she gave in, she, um, she accepted the invitation with this yearning, right? this yearning to feel, and, and, and it's this yearning to not just be healed, but to feel alive, to be alive. And that's also what I believe, freedom, genuineness, vulnerability, aliveness. It's all the same. And so, and so I believe that we have this access to ourselves. These, there's this yearning to feel alive, and it disturbs us in incredible seismic ways at the core. And it's a beautiful disturbance. It drives us to freedom to, and to, to feel alive, to become emancipated from the tyrannies of this inner and outer judgment. And it's an energetic movement that thrusts us in the unknown. And I believe that we can unwaveringly approach the unknown when we stay attuned to our signals, which requires practice, that guide us, that illuminate direction. So I believe the writer in this woman's story are prophetic beacons. They're calling us to discover where truth, peace, and freedom actually lie. It's not out in the external world. It will never come that way. But it's inside ourselves in this guiding, right? So we discover then that, that our true selves, right? We discover then in, in this unfolding intimate engagement with life and mystery, this uncovered, unrestrained self, right? So the more, what I mean by that is the more we interact, the more we engage in life, right? We live, the more we live uncovered, so, you know, in an unprotected way, and I just mean in the sense that um, we live freely. We can, we know danger and we can avoid danger, but it's, this isn't the same thing. This is, when we're talking about danger here, I'm talking about when we can sense that something's off, that there's this imminent uh, threat. But what happens is when we grow up and we're so deeply injured at times or we experience a real tragedy or trauma in life and it throws us off, um, sometimes we stay uh, quarantined in, in this kind of quarantine safe space and we don't want to partake in life and engage in mystery and the unknown, right? But that's the, that's the caveat, is that actually to live in life in mystery, to become free and alive means that we also uncover, we live uncovered and unrestrained. And then this, this irrefutable and immutable authenticity comes forth. We can't turn it off anymore. Once you start to see this in yourself, once you start to know the stirring and you don't run away from it, you don't avoid it, you're, you become conscious of it, you can't go away from it. 
It cannot be destroyed. And then one naturally offers this freedom to others, not in the sense of, you should, you should accept this or do this. No, no, no. We're talking about that someone just naturally illuminates and beams. They're just themselves. They're, this freedom is attractive. That's what I believe Jesus you know, uh, really radiated with his genuineness. And people gravitated towards that, the ones that, were, uh, that wanted that kind of freedom. It didn't hide behind this religious piety. They went for that. So this is what I get out of the story. The faith, right? It's this. It's the spirited, dynamic, reverberating energy that's synonymous with, again, with genuineness, with authenticity, with listening to ourselves. It compels us, right, to to both discover and live out of our genuine self. The genuineness that travels beyond the confines and limits of our society, of our own selves that we've absorbed, that imprison overshadow. It's a genuineness that moves us into the dimensions of reality, light, humor, love, and joy. That's what I mean, right? Where there's this beautiful, harmonized, mutual connection with people. And it genuineness embraces what may come, even if pain is around the bend. And this actualization only happens, I think, when we find that voice within. And that's what this woman did. And that's what's expressed in the story. And I'm thankful for that. Because that's what goes on when I'm in the, the therapy room. That's what happens with people in my life. That's what happens when I'm not even around people. When I feel like, I guess I want to go. I want to go outdoors. I want to go to Ireland. I want to explore. I want to say this. I want to have people over. I want to I want to share the story of myself with people. That's, and it's not to get a response or reaction back. It's not. The hope is maybe that happens, but it's not manipulative. It's because I want to say this. I want to speak this because I don't want this hidden down. But that, again, that, that takes a lot of risk like this woman did. And like I said, I'm so grateful for her doing that. If, if this was a true story, if it was a literal story, then wonderful. I'm thankful. And if it's just the writer, then wonderful, because I'm grateful for that. Because this is the message that I found in the story. This is this calling that happens in every single one of us, to live life in an unrestricted, loving, caring way. It's humorous and it's real to live in reality and not uh, hide away from it. So, on that note, I think that's it. So, I hope that you find that truth within. Take care.